Please read with me. And the people of Israel went down to Egypt. There they multiplied and prospered. But then a new king arose who afflicted them. God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant, saw them, and knew their suffering. The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. And God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant, saw them, and knew. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. And God heard and remembered his covenant. God sent a child named Moses. His mother hid him in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter took pity on him, because God saw and remembered. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said, I have come down to deliver the people. I am who I am. He hears, remembers, sees, and knows. Thanks be to our God, our deliverer. Thanks be to God, our friend. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 3, 1 to 15. I will be reading from the ESV. You will see the passage on your screens as well. Let's read together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We look forward to hearing what God has to say to us this morning through our brother Chris. He continues our sermon series from Exodus with his sermon titled, A Bush, God's Calling. Chris, over to you. Thanks, Wen. Before we start this morning's message, I wanted to say a few words about what has been going on around our country these past few days. Many of you have seen the video of Derek Chauvin, the Minnesota state police officer, with his knee on the back of the neck of George Floyd as Mr. Floyd lost consciousness and died. And all of you are likely aware of all the demonstrations, of all the protests and the riots that have been going on all around our country over the last couple of days. So first I wanna emphasize that as Christians, we don't condone violence. We don't condone the destruction of property. We don't condone the destruction of human life. We don't believe that violence is the answer, but we believe as Christians that we are not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And yet, behind all the violence of the last few days, we see Black Americans who are frustrated that their voices are not heard. We hear Black Americans who are infuriated that what happened to George Floyd isn't an isolated incident, but is a continuation of a repeated pattern in this country. And we see people mourning the death of someone who shouldn't have died if this world were a just world. I confess that as someone who is second generation Chinese, sometimes I'm not sure what to make of race relations in this country. When we think about racial tensions in this country, too often they're framed as tension between white and black. And so as someone who's ethnically Chinese, someone who's not, neither seen as a perpetrator of racism nor seen by society as a victim of racism, sometimes it's hard for me to know how or whether to engage when it comes to issues of racism and issues of justice surrounding racism. But it's not totally true that we're just bystanders. Just this past week, a sister shared with me how she was in a parking lot and a stranger randomly just started swearing at her with no clear provocation other than the fact that she was Chinese. And I know for many of us, we've experienced various forms of racism throughout our entire lives in one way, shape, or form. And so in the face of the injustice and the divisiveness of racism that threaten our country, it can be difficult to discern how God calls us to respond as Christians because especially for us who are Chinese. As Christians, we affirm that all humanity, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender, are made in the image of God. And therefore, they're all, they all, we all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. We also believe that our God is a God of justice, a God who cares about justice, a God who cares about the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the alien. 
And we believe that God calls us as Christians to seek justice and to act justly. And we know that as we seek to live faithfully, we recognize that sometimes we ourselves will experience injustice. And when we experience injustice, we see in the Bible that we are called to bless those who persecute us. We are called to entrust judgment to God rather than to seek vengeance ourselves. So as we see all that has happened around our country this past week, these past years, let's pray. Pray that we as Christians can rise above the hatred and the fear that so many have in order to love and to treat people with dignity and respect that they deserve as people made in the image of God. Pray that as a church, we might be a prophetic voice to expose and stand against injustice as God calls us to seek and to act with justice. But likewise, pray that we as the church might also be people of peace, modeling what it looks like to bless those who persecute us, modeling what it looks like to overcome evil with good, recognizing, uh, modeling what it looks like to submit judgment to God. And pray also as one prayed that we might be humble enough to examine ourselves and confess and repent of our own sin, our own prejudice, the ways in which we ourselves have had a role in perpetrating injustice, because we know that we ourselves are also sinners saved by grace. And pray that we might experience and demonstrate the forgiveness of God as we work towards God's call to be reconciled with one another in the church. Let us stand alongside our brothers and sisters who suffer injustice with the unity that God calls us to have as Christians. Let us learn to weep with them when they weep. Let us lament with them when they lament. Because we are one church, and when one part of the church is hurting, we all hurt. Pray that God might unite the church in this way, as a witness and as a testimony to his power and to his glory and to the truth of who he is and his character for the rest of the world to see. Let's continue now to Exodus chapter 3. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of being able to participate in a panel on adulting uh, with ICF, our college fellowship. And it, it, the, the adulting panel is basically an opportunity for the college students in our church to have a safe space to ask questions, any question that they might have about life. And the ICFers really didn't pull their punches. They asked some really difficult, some really hard questions that I really had to wrestle with myself and think about whether or not I had any kind of answer at all to those hard questions. And one of these, those questions was, do you think where you are right now is where God was calling you to be in college? Now, as we look at our passage today, I wonder how Moses would have answered that question. Now, he didn't go to a college the way that we think of college, but I wonder whether Moses, who is now 80 years old at the beginning of our passage, how he would have answered that question of whether where he was at 80 years old was where he thought God was calling him back in his youth. Moses is now a lot closer to death than he is to the prime of his life. He's an old man. And so picture yourself as Moses at 80, looking back at your life. Your birth was a miraculous birth. You should have been killed 
under the orders of a genocidal pharaoh. But instead of being killed, you were miraculously rescued through the work, through God's work of through three women, your mother, your sister Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. And not only were you rescued miraculously, you grew up living a luxurious life. You grew up as the adopted grandson of Pharaoh, as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so you had, you grew up with privileges that no one around the world could, could even think of, think of, could even imagine. You had access to education. You had access to, to good food. You had access to luxury. And yet, in the midst of that luxury, in the midst of that privileged life, you never lost sight of your roots. Maybe it was because your mom nursed you, and maybe it was through the influence of your mom reminding you of who you really were. Or maybe it was because you just didn't look like an Egyptian, that even though you were the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, you knew you didn't totally belong with those who were Egyptian. Whatever the reason, even growing up with this privileged life, you knew that you were a son of Israel. And you looked around and you saw your people, the rest of your people, enslaved. And so perhaps at the age of 30, at the age of 40, you, saw, you thought that God had given you this platform. God had given you this privileged life. God had given you this, this position of influence so that you might advocate for your people, so that you might be able to do something and deliver your people from slavery. But then things go south. At the age of 40, in your zeal, you kill an Egyptian to protect one of your people. And you're found out and you're forced to flee. You're forced to flee from that privileged life. And so for the last 40 years, you've been living in exile. You've been humbled. You're now just a shepherd, just like the rest of your people are shepherds. And like the rest of your people, you're not even shepherding your own flock. You're shepherding the flock of your father-in-law. You're a long way from where you were 40 years ago. And now that you're 80, you might be looking back and thinking, have I wasted my life? Have I wasted all the gifts that God had given me? Have I wasted the fact that God delivered me, me, delivered me miraculously? Have I wasted the fact that my existence is all due to God? Have I wasted my life? This is where you find Moses today, just before God calls him to go and deliver Israel. Now, the way Moses is called isn't a paradigm for the rest of us. We're all probably not going to hear from God through a burning bush. And actually, we probably don't want to hear from God through a burning bush. Because as our old pastor, Pastor Chuck, once preached, when it seems like when God calls people extraordinarily, like the way he calls Moses, he's asking them to do something extraordinary. He's asking them to do something life-threatening. He's asking them to do something against astronomical odds. And so perhaps we don't want to be called that way because of what that means for the rest of our life. And yet, as we look at our passage today, there's something remarkable about the way God calls Moses, something remarkable that still applies to us as we consider our calling as God's people. 
And this is that as God calls Moses, the focus is more on who God is and God's character than it is on Moses himself. As we see how God calls Moses, the emphasis is on the presence of God and the character of the presence of God, rather than what Moses is going to do or what God might be telling Moses uh, to become. And so as we examine Moses' calling, let's focus on the nature of the presence of God. Let's focus on who God reveals himself to be. So as we begin the story, we see Moses bring his father-in-law's flock a long way from his home. Now, this is kind of a loose map of Egypt and, and Palestine. Uh, over here is Egypt, where Moses grew up. And when Moses fled, he fled all the way over here to kind of the northwest corner of present-day Saudi Arabia, to Midian. And that's where he spent the next 40 years, uh, raising a family and, raise, and shepherding his father's in-law's flocks. Now, at the beginning of our story, Moses has traveled a long way. He's come from Midian and traveled all the way towards Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, which is probably in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula over here. It's weeks worth of travel, distance of maybe about 100 miles. So why did Moses travel so far? Maybe there was a drought in Midian that year. Maybe the grass in Midian just wasn't growing, and so he had to find something for his sheep to eat. Or maybe the grass on the slopes of uh, Sinai and the, the grass along those hills had a reputation of being lush. And so maybe it was worth traveling that far for Moses to get you know, the choicest of grass, the, the greenest of grass for his sheep to eat. But regardless of the reason, Moses is a long way from home. He's a long way from the home of his youth in Egypt. He's a long way from the home of his exile in Midian. And so as Moses watches the flock on those slopes of Mount Sinai, of Mount Horeb, out of the corner of his eye, he sees something. Way off in the distance, he sees a small bush that's on fire. Now, this in itself isn't that extraordinary because fires weren't that uncommon. I mean, people in those days often lit fires, particularly at night, to keep themselves warm when the temperature dropped. Moses himself likely often lit fires in order to keep himself warm. And so a fire burning off in the distance wasn't really that extraordinary. But as the hours passed, as the top clock continued to tick, Moses kept looking over there and things got more and more curious because the fire didn't go out. Now, the, the bush that was on fire was probably a pretty small bush, maybe at most a couple feet wide. And so Moses would have known that something like that eventually would have gone out. I mean, the flame, there's only so much fuel in a bush that size. And yet the fire continued to burn. And as Moses looked, he couldn't see anyone around who was feeding that fire. And so it was really peculiar. So Moses decides to take a closer look to see exactly why this fire kept burning. He decides to leave his flocks temporarily behind, and he turns to go examine this fire. And as he draws closer, he hears a voice coming from that burning bush. Moses. Moses, a voice calling his name affectionately, almost like a friend might call uh, someone. And Moses responds, I'm here. 
but Moses is probably extremely confused. What's going on here? It seems like something extraordinary is happening. It seems like something supernatural is happening. A voice is talking to him from the bush. But what does it mean? And he hears the voice say, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off because I am the God of your ancestors. I am your God and you are standing on holy ground. And in that moment, Moses is terrified. He's terrified because he's suddenly confronted by the holy presence of God. Now the word holy for many of you guys who grew up in the church, you know the Sunday school answer. The, the word holy means set apart or separate. And in God's revelation of his holy presence through fire, we get a sense of what this separate, separateness means. Because God is pure. God is good. God is righteous. And because he is pure, good, and righteous, he can't tolerate what is not pure, what is not good what is not righteous. And ever since the fall of humanity and creation back in Genesis 3, we are not pure. We are not wholly good. And we do not measure up to the standard of righteousness that is God's righteousness. And so just as fire can burn and destroy that which touches it, none of us can stand before God and his holiness. We would be like bacteria killed by a sanitizing wipe or virus disintegrated by UV light or mold melted away by bleach. Moses was right to be terrified. Just as later in Exodus chapter 19, when the entire people of Israel is gathered around this mountain and they see the presence of God in fire and smoke on the mountain, they also are terrified because the holiness of God threatens who we are as broken people. It, it's a holiness that ought to instill fear in us. It's a holiness that ought to terrify us because of our own sin. And so as Christians, as we seek to experience the presence of God, we can't forget the fact that our God is a holy God, that the presence of God is holy. It's a holiness that cannot tolerate our own impurity. It's a holiness that can't, can't tolerate our sin. And yet, despite God's holiness, he still brings Moses into his presence. He still desires to redeem and dwell with Israel. He still desires to make Israel into his people, to deliver them from Egypt. We see this in verses 6 and 7, where we're reminded again of the theme of this sermon series. He hears he remembers, he sees, he knows. In verse six, we see God introduce himself to Moses as the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when God tells Moses that he's the God of Moses' forefathers, what God is implying is that God remembers the promises that he made to, to his forefathers. God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, that unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham to bless Abraham and to work through Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And so when God says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is indicating that he remembers his promises. 
that his promises are still true, even at that point in time in history. And then verse 7 continues by saying that God has surely seen his people's affliction. It doesn't just say that he's seen his people's affliction, affliction. There's emphasis. God has surely seen his people's affliction. Verse 7 says that God hears their cries, that he knows their suffering. God remembers. And like Minister Jeff preached last week, when God remembers, he acts. And so God continues in the following verses to explain how he remembers and how he's going to act and how he's going to deliver his people from the Egyptians and that he's going to do this by sending Moses. As God calls Moses, he reveals the faithful nature of his presence, the faithful presence that has remained with Israel through the past 400 years as they've suffered in slavery, the faithful presence that is true to his promises that will deliver Israel from bondage. But as Minister Jeff shared last week, it can be hard to see God's faithful presence. Israel probably had a hard time believing it. After all, it's been five to 600 years since God first made his covenant with Abraham. And Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. It's been generations since Israel has been slaves in Egypt. And even for Moses, it's been 80 years since his birth. He's an old man. And with so much time passing, it can be easy to lose faith. As many of us continue to wrestle with mental health or struggle financially with the loss of jobs, it can be easy to lose sight of the faithful presence of God. For those people of color who live life in fear of what, how, how others might treat them or how others might oppress them, it can be easy to lose sight of the faithful presence of God. For all of us as Christians who've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back again, for Jesus to come back and restore creation to the way it ought to be, to bring earth back to an, a, a world of justice, it can be easy to lose sight of the faithful presence of God. And yet, God's revelation to Moses here, as he calls him, is a revelation that he is faithful, that God doesn't forget his promises. And God's faithful presence doesn't mean life will be easy. Just look at Israel and Egypt. But God's faithful presence means that even if we experience the worst of circumstances in life, God is with us. God's promises are still true. And God will faithfully bring us home to glory. And what we experience in this present life is nothing compared to what we will experience in the glory that awaits us. So we can endure suffering as we live faithfully, as we seek to follow God. We can endure suffering that comes our way, that sometimes comes because we are seeking to live life faithfully, because God's faithful presence and his promises are with us. John Ortberg, pastor of Menlo Church in California, shares a story of a day when he went out surfing. And when he went out surfing, there was almost no one around. The only person that he could see was this gigantic man on the beach practicing Taekwondo. And so he seemingly had the entire ocean to himself. 
And so as he spent the hours surfing, he was enjoying himself when suddenly a small boy came up and started paddling alongside him. The boy was so small that John, even though he'd been out there for a number of hours, had completely missed him, had completely overlooked him. And so the boy and John started talking. They started to share about their love of surfing and why they took up surfing. And John asked the boy, you know, how long have you been surfing? And the boy said, seven years. John asked the boy, how old are you? He said, I'm eight. And John, John was just shocked that a boy that age, a boy that small, had so little fear when it came to braving the waves of the ocean, when it came to braving, you know, what seemingly is dangerous because uh, a dangerous activity. And so he asked the boy, how did you get here? And the boy said, my dad brought me. And the boy waved to the man on the beach practicing Taekwondo and that man waved back. And in that moment, John realized that the boy wasn't alone. That even in the midst of potential treacherous waves, the boy was safe because his father was watching him. Because his father was ginormous. And in the same way, we are not alone because of the faithfulness of God's presence. And so thus far, we've seen God reveal the holiness of his presence as he called Moses. And we've seen how yet, despite his holiness, we've seen how God has revealed the faithfulness of his presence to Moses and to Israel. And the story continues where we see God reveal his active presence. God tells Moses his plan, that he is going to send Moses to Pharaoh, and he is going to send Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And Moses' first response is, who am I? Moses has come a long way in the 40 years that he's been living in the wilderness or in living, exiled in Midian. Moses has been humbled. Whereas 40 years ago, he would have said, you know, I've been given this position. I've been given this platform. I have this position of influence. I am the one who is able to deliver Israel from their bondage. Now he's 80. He's an old man. He's nothing more than the shepherd of someone else's flock. And so Moses asks, who am I? Which is a perfectly legitimate question. And we see God sidestep Moses' question and his response. Because God doesn't answer the question of who Moses is directly. God answers by saying, I will be with you. God is acknowledging that the, Moses' insecurity is true, that Moses ought to be insecure, that Moses ought to be questioning who he is. Because the truth that he couldn't acknowledge 40 years ago is the truth that he is now seeing, that the point is not who you are. The point is not who Moses is. The point is that God will be with him. God tells Moses, I will be actively present with you. When it comes to delivering your people from Israel or from Egypt, when it comes to what I'm calling you to do, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. It's not about what you are going to do. It's about what I am going to do. 
And so Moses hears this, but he's still not sure. And so he asks God his second question. Who are you? When the people of Israel ask me, who has sent you? Who am I supposed to say that you are? And God answers with a sentence that is incredibly profound. He says, I am who I am. There's a play on words going on here because the word I am in Hebrew is grammatically closely related to the revealed name of God, Yahweh. Now, in most of our English translations, we don't actually see the name Yahweh in the text, uh, probably in keeping with the tradition of of, old, of uh, Hebrew Masoretic priests or monks who didn't who didn't want to pronounce the name of Yahweh out of fear of taking his name in vain, and so they would instead say Adonai, which means the Lord. And so, when we look at our translations of the Old Testament, instead of Yahweh, we'll often see the Lord in all caps because Adonai means the Lord. But the but the name Yahweh and the word I am are very closely related, as I said. Uh, the word I am is the first person verbal form of the name Yahweh. And so when God says, I am who I am, he is emphasizing his active presence in the world. He is emphasizing his active presence in creation. God is. God is actively present in sustaining his creation. God is actively present in working in and through his people. Even though God is a transcendent God, he's not a God who is far away. He is a God who is. He is a God who is here. He is a God who is working in his creation. And so God proceeds to outline exactly how his active presence is going to work in the next year, how God's active presence is going to work in the people of Israel, how God's active presence is going to deliver Israel from Egypt. And so as God calls Moses, God reveals the holiness of his presence. God reveals the faithfulness of his presence. And God reveals his active presence. Now, four years ago, when I quit my job to go to seminary, I was 36 years old. And I quit my job to go to seminary as the first step and it's the first step of faith as we sought to explore God's calling for our family to serve overseas as missionaries. Now, missions had been a theme in my life for a long time, but I never thought, uh, since college, I just didn't think that God was calling me to be a missionary. I told God, God, if you're calling me, I'll go, but you're clearly not calling me. And the reason I didn't think God was calling me was because I didn't think I had the gifts to be a missionary. I'm extremely risk averse. My dad, you know, first generation Chinese immigrant has told me that I am the most conservative person that he knows. I worked the same job at the same company for 14 years. I don't like change. I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body which I perceived as being necessary for someone to become a missionary. And so I didn't explore that. I didn't even consider that God might be calling us to missions because I didn't think I had anywhere near the gifts of being a missionary. But then God started to challenge me in my life. 
And he started to speak to me through 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul writes that the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient to you for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul continues, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may be upon me. As I considered why I hadn't thought that God was calling me to missions after college, I realized that I was worrying too much about my own perception of my own abilities, my own perception of what I could do, my own perception of my own gifts. God's revelation of his active presence reminds me that when God works to accomplish his purposes, he chooses to work through our weakness. He chooses to work through the cries of children and of infants because it's through our weakness that he has shown strong. It's not because of who we are. It's because of who he is. So there are times I still wrestle and second guess myself, but it's during those times that God reminds me of his active presence, that it's not about me, it's about him. And this is an encouragement when we fail also, because ultimately God is the one who works through us. We're called to be faithful, but we're not responsible for the end results. That's God's responsibility. And so we don't often understand what God is doing and we can't interpret what is failure and what is success. There are times where God gives us a vantage point where we can see you know, how God used what seemed like failure and turned it into success. There's the story of Jim Elliott, the missionary pilot who went down to Columbia to reach out to the Alka Native Americans and he was killed. And people said, why this waste? He was so young. He had only just gotten married. And yet later, with that vantage point, we can see how God used Jim Elliott's death to bring the gospel to those same people who killed him, to bring the gospel to the same man who killed him, to bring that message of reconciliation and of peace to those people. But then there are other times where we're left scratching our heads, where we just don't understand why God allows certain things to happen. And we don't understand how certain setbacks fit into the tapestry of God's work. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul exhorts his readers about the victory that we have over death in Christ. And he writes in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Regardless of what human wisdom might say, we cling to this hope that our labor is not in vain. Even when it seems like we have failed, our labor is not in vain because God is actively present at work with us. God is actively present at work through us. God is actively present at work through us who he has called to be his people. And God will ultimately be shown to be victorious. And so we've seen that as God called Moses, the emphasis has been on his presence, the holiness of his presence, the faithfulness of his presence, and the activeness of his presence. But there still is unresolved dissonance, which we alluded to before, 
which is how can a holy God be present with a stiff-necked people? How can a holy God be present with a people who are sinful, with a people who are broken? We see this later in Exodus when God commands Israel to build his tabernacle. And what does Israel build instead? Israel builds a golden calf, an idol. And so the, 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 the contradiction there is God is asking them to build a tabernacle so that he can dwell with his people. And instead they build an idol, making it even more clear, raising the question even more clearly, how can God dwell with the stiff-necked, broken people who rebel against him? And this dissonance reaches its peak in the person of Christ. Because in Christ, God took on flesh and dwelled among a sinful, broken man. How can God do that? And yet in Christ, we see the faithfulness of God's presence. We see Jesus declaring this in John chapter 8 when he said, alluding to our passage today, when Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus declaring that he is the faithful presence of God, that he is the active presence of God. And so we see the faithful presence of God at history's darkest hour, at the cross, where even in death, God was faithfully present with humanity. And we see the active presence of God in Christ's resurrection. We see the active presence of God working through history against human wisdom. We see the active presence of God working to resolve the dissonance that we see in our passage today, the dissonance that's raised throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the Bible. The victory that declares that those who put their faith and trust in Christ are righteous before God. That those who put their faith in Christ and submit their lives to him, can experience God's holy, faithful, and active presence because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We're probably not going to hear a call like Moses in our lives. We're probably not going to hear God speak to us from a burning bush. And yet, all of us hear the call of God in Christ. The call to remember that God is faithfully present with us. The call to remember and the call to be, the call to surrender ourselves over to the active presence of God. That to surrender ourselves to to God working in us. The call to be reconciled to God in Christ so that we can be holy just as God is holy. God is holy and yet present to those whom he calls. And we trust that he is faithfully present with us, that he is actively present in and through us. Let us pray. God, as we look at the world around us in recent weeks, we see so much sin. We see so much brokenness. And we know that we are not immune from that sin. We know that we are not immune from that brokenness because we are part of that fallen humanity. And so like Moses, like others in the Bible, when we consider your presence, we cry out to you, woe is me, because how can we stand before the holy presence of God?
And yet, God, despite your holiness, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are loving. And in your graciousness and mercy, you have demonstrated to us your faithful presence with us. And you have demonstrated to us your active presence for us. And you have shown this to us most fully in Christ who died for us so that we can be righteous and so that we can stand before your holy presence and so that we can stand before your holy presence to know you, to experience you, to worship you, and to exalt you. So God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of you to ourselves. We thank you for the gift that you have called us to be your people. We have called, we are thankful, Lord, that you have made us to be your people who previously were not a people. And we worship and we exalt you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.